It's recording. This is a first for me in that you're the first, well, almost doctor that I've had on this podcast, but also the first relative I've had on this podcast. I feel so honored. You should. Um, everybody, this is uh, Steve, obviously. <laughs> And I am sitting here, as I mentioned last week, with my, yeah, I mentioned you on the podcast last week, with my cousin Victoria, who is in, is it still school technically? Yeah, it's still school. Your final year of medical school. Almost final year. I'm so jealous, kind of. No, don't be jealous. I would never want to go through that, but I kind of wish I had the knowledge of a doctor. You know... Here's what I tell people about medical school. Like, unless you're willing to like sell your soul for medicine, yeah. it's not worth it. What made you want to do medical school? I... The family business? Yeah. You know, it was kind of the family thing. You know, your dad was a doctor. Yeah. Um, his brother was a doctor. It was my grandfather. Yeah. My dad's a doctor. Yep. And I just grew up around it. There's a lot of doctors in the AG family. There are. Sort of. Yeah, there's a lot of doctors in the AG family. Um, so you just did you just assume I'm this is probably what I'll do? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I there was never really another option but in my mind. You're a huge nerd. You didn't want to like. I am a may, huge maybe nerd. Maybe I'll do. Uh, maybe I'll make comic books. Well, my original foray into science, like besides you know my dad coming home and being like, I don't know what to do with my small daughter as a general surgeon and um, besides dissecting gophers on the weekends, you know, Is that true. It's very true. <laughs> he would come home and his idea of fun would be to uh, see the gophers that we trapped and he'd bring home little scalpels and he's like, this no. is, this is the tiny little brain. These are its tiny little organs. So I grew up around it. You were dissecting gophers as a kid. Oh yeah. We would pick up roadkill no. Uh, and go home no. and we would skin it. He'd show me the muscles. Um, oh my God. I distinctly remember I had a book report to do on the Redwall books. I don't know if you remember those. Mm-mm. They were popular when I was a kid. It's all about these little, it's like a medieval community of mice and badgers and different um, rodents. And I had to do a book report on one of them. And one of the big warriors was a badger. We just happened to find a badger that had been hit on the side of the road. So we drove back, picked it up, took it home, skinned it. You know, we looked at all the muscles, we dissolved all the fat and everything. And then I took in the skull and the badger skin to school. And and you're looking at me like, that's not normal. So you were doing surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's what I did for like fun growing up. So was he also quizzing you like he would open up a badger and be like, what is this organ? No, but I do remember, I don't remember how young I was, but he would, he was trying to teach me the concept of ratios. Like, you know, as a kid, you're always like, how long is it going to take to get there? And then he's like, okay, well, I'm going this fast and we've traveled this far and it's just like super over my head. But he would, he would always try to do that. Yeah. Growing up. So for me, I just grew up in math and science. There was no escaping it. I remember in high school, 
biology having to dissect a pig, a baby pig, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and also I think a frog. Yeah. And it was so traumatic to me. <laughs> and just also... Yeah, it was... It, traumatic is the best word. Like, because I didn't know... It's a, it is a science. Like, how deep do I make this incision? Yeah. I don't want to cut open the lungs. Puncture anything. The lungs yeah. or the kidneys. I mean... I do that now. I'm on my surgery rotation and you know, sometimes I look at the actual doctors who are scrubbed in and doing the surgery. And I'm like, how do you know? How do you know how deep to cut? Like what if you yeah. hit something and it terrifies me? It's awesome. Well, how it's do you cool. Learn that in school? Like, cause there's but gotta be, it's just practice. It's just practice. You know, they tell us that like, when you're doing a gallbladder, Ugh. right? And they put in kind of like the different ports. I can see you like squirming ports. from the description. Ports. Yeah, because you have to get in. You have to, A, when they're doing a gallbladder. By the way, I don't even know where a gallbladder is. Gallbladder. Is it under the sternum? It is under your liver. So if you have like the right side of your, like your ribs right there, your liver's right there. And then tucked kind of underneath the liver is the gallbladder. It's right by the kidneys then. Kidneys kidney are going to be more kind of in the back. Yeah. All the good stuff's on the right side. No, I mean, you have your spleen on the left side. Oh, it is? Yeah. <laughs> Spleen's on the left side. I failed biology. <laughs> it's okay. You didn't rest much. Well, you know, what's crazy is my first year in college, I was a biology major because I wanted to be a marine biologist. I was planning on going from Loma Linda to, you know, somewhere Long Beach State or something. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But I wanted to get all my biology stuff out of the way. And I just failed miserably. Like that first semester, I developed ulcers because I was so freaked <laughs> so out. Stressed. I was so stressed. Yeah. I was failing tests. Because they start you in college, you start with biology, you start at like the cellular level. Every, yeah, they start yeah. at the smallest level and work their way up. Mm-hmm. For me, it probably would have been better to go the opposite, <laughs> go the way, opposite way to get me hooked, but I couldn't grasp, you know, something that you like can't see and it's only a concept. Yeah. And there's so much going on down there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after the first semester, I went undeclared for the, uh, the rest of the year. And then, uh, my friend Sam was like. Dude, just be an art major. <laughs> and I did that. And I mean, it's such a history. better life. It's such a better life. It was not stressful. I could, yeah. because I'm pretty good at improvising and stuff, uh, I was able to just bullshit my way through all my art classes. And because you work on your art projects, you know, all week. And then at the end of the week, the teacher sits around with the class and they're like, breaking down your what does this what mean? did you feel when you made this and i was just like oh <laughs> yeah the reality is i was just throwing paint onto a canvas yeah that see that sounds no like a, a much better college experience not that my college experience wasn't great and i loved it but i was also just stressed all the time how was the pre-med years pre-med years uh you know it was harder for me because I 
double majored in college, right? As so I had a music performance major oh, yeah. and a biology major. You play the harp. I do play the harp. Do you play piano too? I play harp and piano. Yes. So so when I wasn't in the science building, I was in the music building. What made you want to learn harp? I have <laughs> that a cousin. Is such a specific. Yeah. I have a cousin on the other side of my family who was a harpist and we visited them and it was shortly after I had started playing piano. So I was a couple years into piano and I saw her play and she has this gorgeous 1920s gilded harp. You know, you don't touch it because the gold will flake off on your fingers kind of harp. And I loved it. I was like, I want to play that. And she said, you know, take a few more years of piano. And then you can start playing the harp. So you need to be fairly proficient at piano before you start harp. You don't have ideally. to be. You don't have to be, but it helps because the music reads the same. It's the same clefs. I can take piano music from movies and play on the harp. Is it like if you took the, the strings inside a piano and raised them vertically? Yeah, yeah. The joke is that um, harps are just pianos with no clothes on. I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. And you're really good too. I've heard you play. I am decent. I. You know, I very much enjoy it. Do you it. know who Joanna Newsom is? I've heard the name before. She's a yeah. a harp player, but more alternative mainstream. Not, yes. Not classical. Not classically trained, yeah. Um, so you, how long... So do you have a degree? So my degree technically is bachelor's of science, right? I have a bachelor's of science in... B- biology and BS. music. Yeah, it's my BS degree, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's stressful. You it was. doing music and biology, It was. I never had, basically. you know, biology by itself is a stressful major. Music performance by itself is a stressful major because you have all those tiny little zero credit classes and half credit classes yeah. that take up hours of practice. Um, Did you have but, to do a lot of live performance for your oh, major? Yeah. Every, I mean, every semester I had, I had a, a symphonia. So basically like an orchestra performance. I had solo performance on piano and then Ooh. I had chamber performance, Ooh. which with whatever ensemble <laughs> I was with that semester. And then somehow I always got pulled into accompanying people where there was accompanying the choir, accompanying seniors on their senior recital. But then again, you know, I was on scholarship for music. So anything they asked oh, me to were. do, I had to say yes. Yeah. How did that come about? How do you get a scholarship? So I, for music? I mean, I, I obviously grew up playing and I did a bunch of competitions when I was younger. And so I was used to performing, you know, eight months after I started piano was when my first piano instructor put me on a competition. She's like, you're good enough. Go, go play. Really? Um, and so I grew up performing and then once I outgrew my first piano teacher, I actually... You mean got better than your first piano teacher? No, it's just to the point where she looked at me and she's like, I have nothing else to offer you. Whoa. Um, and at that point, my parents started looking for a new teacher. And I ended up taking piano from the piano instructor at the college I ended up going to. Yeah. And that was my freshman year of high so school. So is he the one responsible for getting you the scholarship so she was able to you know she told me when the scholarships were and you had to go and you had to audition yeah um and oh my gosh this was so long ago you had to play two pieces two pieces i think um by memory yeah and 
for me, it wasn't just one instrument, right? I was auditioning with harp and piano. So, you know, they just schedule a time when people come and audition. You go in one afternoon, play your pieces, leave, and then later on in the year you hear if you get a scholarship or not. So did you just use that scholarship to go to college to also study medicine? Like, so, well, they're offering me a scholarship. I'll, I'll double major. Yeah, basically. Because what would have been the plan musically? Musically, it was teach. It was just a hobby for me. It was always just a hobby. Um, people were always shocked when I told them that I wasn't going to make it my career. Um, but I told them that I wanted it to remain a hobby and I didn't want it to become work. Right. I wanted it to stay something that I enjoyed doing. And that you could pay the bills. <laughs> and that I could pay the bills with. Music's a rough way to make a living. It's, you know, I respect musicians. They they go through a lot. They work hard hours and yeah. aren't paid nearly enough for their talents. So first year, first year actual medical school, when you get into medical school, mm-hmm. is it the same shit as like we're starting at the molecular level. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, you start God. out with just basic cell biology, how a cell works. Um, you go through basic anatomy. Then you start kind of learning how the body works, how different chemicals work, how different hormones work. Um, and then you learn embryology. So you start out as egg and sperm, and this is what happens, and you <sighs> learn the process there. So first year is just basic, I'm putting like air quotes, basic science year right. for us. Yeah. Is that the hardest year, do you think? No. No. Second year is absolutely <laughs> harder. What's second year? Second year is when you go through and you learn the diseases, you learn the disease pathways, you learn Jesus the different Christ, changes. So. <laughs> you learn the different like changes, how the diseases affect your body. You learn the pathology of it, so like the physical effects and how it changes everything on the cellular level. And you learn pharmacology. And pharmacology is just a completely different language. It's yeah. words that aren't real words yeah. for drugs for that affect all parts of your body. <sighs> second year is definitely the hardest, especially because at the end of second year, you take your first set of board exams. Oh. And these are, you know, they always talk about boards on medical shows. That yeah. It's like, you don't really understand like how stressful it is because sure. you have one chance to take this test and it's an eight hour test. You have one chance. Eight hours. And the score you get determines what specialties you can go into. So like that one score determines the rest of your life, basically. It's how did awful. you do on your first on your boards? I passed. Which you know Is we that really say all you're hoping for is pass, to pass? Pass equals MD. Like pass equals MD. That's something that we tell ourselves from year one because going from college to med school, it's a big jump. You know, all of us were top of our class all of us got honors. And then you go to med school and you're like, man, this sucks. I'm not doing as well as I'm used to. And so, you know, for boards, my view of it was just do as well as you can. And then you make it work afterwards and go from there. So, you know, I did, I did, I did okay. I can, with my score that I have, I think, you know, I can get the residencies that I want. But that's but all written, right? It's all Your multiple boards. choice. 
Oh, mm-hmm. it's like the SATs. On steroids. It's eight like hours. Eight hours. So you get... Do you uh, get bathroom breaks? You can take breaks in between each section. So there are sections, um, but you have a total amount of time. So you can choose not to take breaks and finish earlier, or you can take you know, like five-minute breaks in between each section. I think it's... Oh, man. I, I realize I just took this test like eight months ago, but... I want to say it's like 40 question blocks and you can take breaks after each one if you want to. And do you get like scratch paper to like, I guess it's not math. So you're not work. It's stuff you have to just but know. Some of it, some of it is math because you have to know how to work with experiments. You know, it's like, okay, if this person tests positive and the test is only right 50% of the time and it's wrong 50% of the time, what's the likelihood that, she's testing like positive or negative. So you have to be able to do, there's a math portion to it, but they give you basically a laminated sheet of paper and a whiteboard marker. And sometimes it's a great whiteboard marker and sometimes it's a really shitty whiteboard marker. That's all you have to work with for the entire test. And you're not allowed to erase anything because then they worried that you could be cheating. So you cannot like write down all your mnemonics for the hours and hours of things that you've learned. So many mnemonics to learn for medicine. Because for those like listening a, who don't know what mnemonics are. <laughs> for mnemonics, it's basically however you remember things, right? So, oh, okay. you know, we're talking about... What if you remember shit by singing it? What then if you you're hum it to yourself in your head, you know? Cell division myth. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, of course, now I'm trying to think of a mnemonic off the top of my head and it's not coming to me, but you know, we would think of for pharmacology, there are programs that we use that paint these like pictures for the different drugs, the names, the side effects, what they do. And can you write down like, okay, this drug was associated with this picture had this side effects. And so you can write down things that you can remember or, you know, like with any test, it's kind of like, okay, I don't remember this fact but maybe something down the line will remind me of it. So you write down like, okay, uh, gastritis, you know, what is like, what causes this? What drugs do I use? And then you go back and you're like, oh, that's right. You know, use this, use this, use this and go back for it. So, I mean, just like, you know, any like typical test, it's just really long and has a lot of really hard information on it. At least hard. I think it's hard information. I'm sure, you know, the more practice you get, the more exposed to it you are. How many people were in your freshman class in med school? In med school, I think we had 167-ish. How many do we have now? in in the second year? Um, Like what what were the numbers going, dropping, dropping out? It changes year by year, right? So the med school I'm at, you have... um, a biomed class. So it's basically students that are accepted to med school, but their scores or their grades weren't quite enough. So they're in med school, but in order to start the first year of med school the following year, they have to score at or above the class average, which is unbelievably stressful and competitive for them. Um, So they're not technically part of our class, but then they add to our class. Then you also have people who end up having to repeat their first year and then their numbers drop or people who end up leaving medical school for whatever reason. So the numbers fluctuate. I'm going to pause this for one second. 
And we're back. We I pause this. The listeners have <laughs> no time has passed for you listening. <laughs> I had to pause this, but we're back. We were and we were talking about people dropping out, dropping out of med school. Yeah. Um. And class size changing and whatnot. Yeah. Here's mom's uh, laundry at the fitted stairs. Okay, thanks. It's in the basket. It's already done. <laughs> well, now you've seen how the sausage is made. <laughs> I paused this because my sister walked in and she's very animated and talkative. And she's enthusiastic. You think I curse bad on this podcast? <laughs> it's. It rivals the Jerry Springer show with her <laughs> in the room. Um, third year. Third year. Yes. Which when do you I'm get to in. start actually like you're in third year now? Third year now. I'm ending oh. third year. So now you get to do the cool stuff like I get to actually cut people open and stick my nose or take my nose out of books and actually be in the hospital. Yeah. So, so after you're doing you do, residencies. So the way med school works, right? You do your four years of med school. After your third year of med school, you take another set of boards. So I get to look forward to that this summer. When, oh, this summer. Oh. And um, those kind of boost you towards whatever specialty you want. Still very important. Still have to pass. Still want to get a good score. And then you apply for specialties in the fall. And it's just like, basically just like applying for college. So that's next year you're applying. Yeah, so that's going to be this fall. After boards. That's after boards. Yep. You apply... You send out a bunch of applications to whatever specialty you want to do, and you hope to Are get you interviews. Are you limited to the number of specialties you apply to? You typically only apply to one specialty at a time. Oh. Um, some people who want to specialize, so they want to go into like psychiatry, dermatology, um, neurosurgery, ophthalmology, um, will apply to those specialties, but then they'll also have a backup specialty in case they don't get accepted into one of those residencies. So you do your four years of med school, then you have an intern year, which is kind of like an interim between med school where you still kind of don't know what's going on and residency where you're supposed to know what's going on. Right. Um, so you have your intern year and then you start your official residency residency. So this year you've just been trying out all the different departments. Yeah. Trauma surgery. So I have done... What have you done so far? So far... <laughs> I have done family medicine, OB-GYN, internal medicine, neurology, psychiatry, and I'm on surgery now, and then I finish on pediatrics. And so those, can, are the, those are all you have to do before you apply for specialties? Yeah. So next year, I have a couple more required rotations. So right. we're required to go through and do an ER rotation. Oof. So we spend time in the, in the ED good old emergency department. We're required to do an ICU rotation and you can do surgical ICU, peds ICU, or a medical ICU. Um, and then you're required to do what we call a sub-I, so like a sub-intern rotation. Wait, what's the difference between like surgical ICU and medical ICU? Okay, so surgical ICU, it's typically surgical patients. So their problems are mainly surgical. Um, which it, it sounds self-explanatory, but... To me, to me, because I've been around it. Um, so say somebody comes in with uh, a trauma, they were in a bad car accident, and we found internal bleeding, 
and we had to, you know, cut open their abdomen to see what the bleeding was from, and you're gagging, which, you know, again, for me, this is just normal, you know, shop talk, but for other people, it's like, oh my gosh, that's disgusting. Um, so that person becomes a surgical ICU patient um, because it's a, it's a surgical problem that we're managing. Medical ICU, we're talking about people who have, have heart failure, right. who have lung disease so bad they're in respiratory failure, kidneys are failing. So they these don't are, most of those people though eventually become surgery ICUs because they not necessarily um, because we think of let's take you know kidney failure yeah you know. Um, for them, maybe they get a transplant, but most time, you know, they'll go on dialysis. We yeah. give them medications to make sure that, um, you know, they're like diuretics that make sure that they like pee out a bunch of liquids and we <sighs> manage them medically with like medicine, drugs, treatments, right. but we don't go and take out their kidneys. Right. So that's kind of like the difference between the two. Um, <sighs> Like, I know, basic difference between the two. It's so hard to explain when you're not in it. So you... <laughs> you're just like holding your head in disgust. So since you've been doing your surgery, what are they called? Uh, rotations. Rotations. Mm -hmm. It's been blood. You've, you've seen a lot of blood, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Because you're I've, in an not you're in an area that's like I'm in a, a county high, hospital, high, high crime. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a county hospital. Gunshots. Stabbings. It's not private. I've seen I've seen gunshots. I've seen stab wounds. I've seen bad car accidents. You know, I've seen Ugh. people come in where we have we've had to cut off large amounts of flesh, and <sighs> you know it's it's very interesting <laughs> because. You know, you see people and you're like, oh, it's a person. But once you get into the OR, they're draped up and you just have this sterile field in which you have to do surgery. Now, keep in mind, I'm the student. I don't do a lot of surgery. I mainly just kind of stand off to the side. Assist. And assist. Make sure I don't break the sterile field and make anything dirty. Um, I'll do what they let us. A, a yeah, exactly. Cavity. You know, you just, you just hope that you don't like piss off the attending and make something go bad or badly. Um, but you go and then you, you see a patient, they're all covered up. It becomes so clinical. You're like, wow, this person had a bad injury. But you know what? We're just going to go in. We're going to remove the tissue that needs to be removed. We're going to pack the wound. It just becomes so clinical and methodical. It's not until you leave the OR and you take all the, or you take all the drapes down and you see this person's face. You're like, oh man, that's, like, a, human. that's, that's, a, that's a person with people who care about them. It's... So surgery is a very different world is what I have discovered over my last five weeks of being on my surgery rotation. Have you ever been in a surgery, everything's cool, and then afterwards you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just saw that. Yeah, yeah. My first day on surgery, I mean, I'm, before this, I've had you know very little surgery besides going into the OR with my dad, who's a general surgeon. Yeah. Um, my first day on surgery, I was on a 24 hour call and it's never 24 hours. It's always longer than that, but you don't know what to expect. You don't know the hospital. You don't know the residents. You don't know the attendings. And they had switched over to the night team and I'm just kind of in the call room updating the list because I didn't know what else to do. And the intern who was on call for the night shift comes in and she's like, oh my gosh, you need to be, you need to be down in the OR right now. An emergency came in. They're down there debriding a patient. Like, okay. Debriding? So debriding 
basically means cutting away dead tissue. Kind of, if you see a wound, it has debris in it. So, so like kind a of, burn or a, like a road yeah. rash or any kind yeah, of... Yeah, exactly. Oh, so it's basically debridement, debris. It's like getting rid of the, just the, the dead, nasty, whatever stuff that is in a wound to try and make it clean so it can actually heal. So they're like, you need to go down to the OR. They're, they're debriding a patient. I'm like, okay. So I go down the elevator. I, I have my phone out. And I'm kind of like reading up on this patient. I'm like, ah, oh, man, I don't know what this guy came in for. Surgery got consulted because apparently he was found unconscious for an unknown period of time. They brought him into the ED. He had some weird skin modeling on his chest. They're like, ah, oh, man, maybe we should have surgery. Look at this. And I go down and I... I go into the OR and you, you, know, you put your mask on, you go into the OR, I have my gown and my gloves to give the scrub tech, to let them know I'm scrubbing in on the case. And I just see this guy and I'm talking like collarbone to bottom of his ribs, no muscle. Like skin is gone. There's no skin, there's muscle no muscle. is gone. There's just ribs. Um, and I'm like, okay, I don't have time to ask questions. Like I don't have time to ask what's going on. I go outside. I, I scrub in, come through the room, put my gown on, and the attending just has a scrub tech give me pickups, so basically like little tweezers to which to grab or with which to grab tissue um, and a scalpel. And the only instruction I got was, if it looks weird, cut it away. If it bleeds, it's still healthy, so stop cutting and don't puncture the lung. Ugh. And it turns out this guy had developed a bacterial infection inside his muscles and it basically like ran along the planes of his muscles and it infected his skin. So it was just from the dead, inside from out. the inside, from the Ugh. inside out. It just, it had infected his skin. So it was just dead. It was just dead tissue. And we, we Is got, that I called mean, necrosis. Yeah. So yeah. He, we, it was necrotizing fasciitis. So it runs along the fascia and myositis. So <laughs> myositis is a muscle infection. And you're just over here gagging. And it was, it was just, I'm looking, I can see so this you guy's see bones and organs. Yeah. I could see this guy's <clears throat> like heart, like not, not his heart, but you could see like the lungs and you could see them like the muscles in between the ribs. And it's like, with every heartbeat, you could see the muscles moving. And when you think of, it's like a well, when, when I think Zombies. of, you know, healthy muscles, you're like, oh, you know, it's, it's red. It's healthy. This guy's muscles were purple. Like they were just so infected. And there was even the muscles in between the ribs. And you can't do anything about that. You're like, this, this is just not going to be good. And we took, I mean, we were like all the way, like halfway up his neck, down his chest, down to like to his elbow. And it was just very clinical, very methodical. And, you know, we did the best we could. We packed the wound. We got him up to surgical ICU because, you know, he had crazy high blood pressure. His heart was failing. It was just, he was septic, which is basically the bacteria had yeah, gotten yeah, into yeah. his blood. Yeah. You know, it's just, he was in shock. His body was failing. And we he got had him up. no skin. This was before he had no that? skin. You know, before he had yeah. no skin, is his body was just shutting down, and so like we put a bunch of like sponges and <laughs> like, I mean I say sponges, but you know, right, right. surgical terms for it. You know, we we packed the wound as well as we could. I'm like, you know, he's too unstable right now. We can't do more. 
we'll send him up, try to stabilize him. And then, you know, later on today slash tomorrow, we'll go back and do some more. Um, because like you can't like this disease is going to kill him. This bacterial infection is going to kill him. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, we got up to the ICU and, um, or we got him up to the ICU got him settled. And then we were downstairs in the ED seeing another consult and we get the call. It's like, Oh, the patient is coding. Like he's had no cardiac rhythm. We go up there yeah, and yeah. he, and he, he ended up passing away. You know, and that's like my first night sh- on surgery. I would have been shocked if someone no. could survive that. And at that point, you know, it was just, I was talking to my resident about it and she's like, you know, death is a mercy at that point. Yep. Because even if you got skin grafts, even if you somehow made it, changing the wound would have been painful. Because I mean, like the, the oh, packing was just, right on the ribs. Like there's just exposed nerves everywhere. Yeah. No, it was, it would have been awful. And that was, that was my first night on surgery. It's a, Welcome to surgery. I can only imagine that looked like a something out of The Walking Dead where oh, you absolutely. can see it their ribs and everything on the inside. Straight out of a zombie movie. And um, I was telling my fellow med students about it. And then every week we have something called M&M, which is <laughs> not as yummy or fun Delicious as it sounds. Delicious candy coating. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a meeting where we have, it's called Morbidity and Mortality. And we talk about the complications from some of the cases the week before, if there are any deaths from the week before. Is this like group therapy? No. Helping I you cope say like, with what you've seen? Um, it's more of a learning experience of a what could we have done differently? Right. What could have we have done to have a better outcome? Um, and I remember... During the surgery, they had taken a picture of the wound to put in this guy's chart. And they had his picture up um, on this screen. And this is all the surgical teams, all the attendings, um, anesthesia, you know, a bunch of people come to these meetings. And I just remember the medical students just turning around looking at me, just with this look of horror on their face. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I wasn't joking when I said this looked awful. Uh, I've seen some shit, you guys. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's no joke. Surgery, surgery is no joke. Kudos to the people who go into surgery because that's, that's a lot to deal with. It is, it is stressful. It is life and death all the time. But you knew before this, you didn't want to go into surgery. Oh, not a chance. No, I think it's, I think it's awesome. I think it's super cool. Was Um, there ever a time when you thought you might? Because your dad does it. My dad does it, and he's brilliant at it. Um, and I spent time in the OR with him growing up, and there was a fleeting <laughs> I moment. Spent time in the OR. <laughs> I know. My dad was always asking me if I wanted to go into the OR, and I always turned him down. Was he would have loved smarter. it. He would have loved it, but I was just like, I, I will faint. Yeah, it's it's not for everyone. No, that's that's for sure. But no, there was there was a fleeting moment I had during med school. I was like, oh man, like I could I could become a surgeon. I could practice with my dad. You know, it can be like one of those legacy practices where there's like the dad, the surgeon, the daughter's a surgeon, and it can be this cool <laughs> thing. And then half a second later, I'm like, no. What am I insane? No, yeah. that's crazy. I don't want to do that. That's not the life I want. I I don't want Grey's Anatomy. Do you? Have you narrowed it down to one thing or a few things? I've narrowed it down to a couple things. I really loved my internal medicine rotation, which what, is kind of like... What does that involve? 
So imagine going to your your primary care provider, like your family doctor. GP. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, general practice. General guys. practice. I know yeah. some medical lingo. You know some lingo. <laughs> um, and they see you for you know pretty much everything, right? But once things get too intense where they can't treat you on an outpatient basis, then they send you to the hospital. Um, so in um, we'll treat it inpatient. So internal medicine. You know, we're thinking, you know, kidney failure, um, COPD caused by smoking, um, you know, infections. It's just this really broad range of organ systems. And once you're in internal medicine, you can specialize in GI. So not surgery, but treating, you know, any GI problems medically. You can do cardiology. You can do rheumatology, which, which is basically but you're like still not joints doing and surgery. things like that. But no surgery. No surgery. So you diagnosing and treating? Yeah. So you're diagnosing, treating everything medically with medicine. There are some procedures you can do, um, but they're not super invasive like surgery is. Right. Yeah. That's what uh, internal medicine. If you've seen the show Scrubs, <laughs> yeah. like JD was internal medicine. So you kind of see this like broad gambit right. of things. Um, so I really liked internal medicine. And then surprisingly enough... I really loved psychiatry when I was on it, specifically child adolescent psych. Adults are okay, but um, you know, adults suck. Let's be honest. <laughs> different set adults of issues. Um, but I loved child adolescent uh, psychiatry. So was, was House an internist? I've never seen House. You've never seen House. I know. Which I really is, liked House. Which is what people say. I watched but. like the first two or three seasons religiously. I loved it. I've heard it's really good, yeah. but right now, like, I can't. You don't have time to watch. TV. Well, I can't, I can't. Don't have time. A, but B. You're too busy watching Avenger nothing, movies. <laughs> yes, that also true. Um, but medical shows aren't entertaining to me. I remember I tried to watch Grey's Anatomy once, and I remember the first episode. I can't even tell you names of the people. I don't know, but he goes into the OR and he freezes up, and they ended up. Uh, calling the resident like 007 license to kill. And I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, that could, that could be me one day in the OR. Like nothing about this is entertainment to me no. because this is my life. Yeah. You know, Scrubs was, you know, different show entirely. Um, yeah. But medical shows aren't, there's not entertainment to me because this is like, this is my life. You know? Yeah. You see things and like, ah, I've, like I've seen people die in the hospital, Ew. you know, and it's Oof. like, I've seen, I've seen families, I've seen diseases that have crippled people. And it's like, this just isn't entertainment to me for yeah. people who aren't in it. It's like, sure. You know, it's like so interesting and everyone always wants to hear medical stories, you know, but to like sit down and watch a show, it's like, ah, no, nah, I'd rather go back and watch Endgame again. <laughs> for the fourth time. <laughs> for the fourth time. time. Yeah. For those listening, my cousin is in her uh, scrubs, and she's got an Avengers pin on her. I do. I'm a huge nerd. It's only been out, what, two weeks, and you've seen it three times now? I two saw it three, three times within the first week. I did. And it was excellent. It's good. Every single time. It wraps up really well. I liked it. Yeah. Right, I learned. So that's, that's two. Is there a third? You said Just ophthalmology. Those no, not opto. But no. that's still surgery. Um, but yeah, no, just, just those two. Um, so for me in the fall, because psychiatry is getting harder to get into, 
just Why? because of lifestyle. It's the same thing with like dermatology, right? Dermatology isn't hard. All you're doing is looking at skin. But because the lifestyle is so nice where you can kind of, you know, have easy hours. You're not on call all the time. Can I tell you how hard it is to get a dermatology appointment? Because they're never around. I was dating a girl in Cincinnati. We met on a movie. I was spending time. I was staying at her uh, her house a lot. And I started getting these rashes. I don't know if it was from her dog or allergies to something, you know, mm. de- detergent or... And it was getting really bad. And I was like, well, I'll just uh, make a dermatology appointment. Every dermatologist I called in Cincinnati was like, we can see you in three months. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to have this rash in three months. You're like, I might not have my arm in three months. Who knows? <laughs> and it was the same when I came to LA. I, I went to a dermatologist. Once I got back, they managed to fit me in. And by that time, yeah, it was all gone. And yeah. I had photos on my phone. I'm like, here. He's like, could be bed bugs. He's like, next time. Helpful. <laughs> next time this happens, come in right away. I was like, I tried to come in right away. And he's like, well, if this happens again, tell my receptionist that I said you need to come in right away. Yeah. And so next time I went back to Cincinnati, it happened again. So when I came back, still had the rash. I called his office. The receptionist answered. I'm like, I need to see the doctor. Okay, we have a, uh, an opening in six weeks. Yep. I go, no, he said that I have to see him now. She's yeah, like, sounds about right. no, we can't do that for six weeks. I'm like, yeah. he told me to tell you to get in right away. Six weeks is the soonest we can do it. Yeah. And I, I berated her on the phone and went and saw a different person. Two weeks later, it was, I never figured out what it was. Probably bed bugs, though, I think. I think it was the. Gross. It is gross. Gross. Yeah, I mean, dermatology, it's one of those things that a lot of the procedures they do are elective. Don't have to deal with insurance, yeah. have easy hours. Um, so a lot of people well, want to go into it for the lifestyle. I think dermatology is just gross. So I would no love to. You. I know so many of these dermatologists are doing like Botox and beauty stuff. And I would love to just <laughs> one time go into a dermatologist's office and have them come in and go, all right, what seems to be the problem? I'm like, I have these weird scratches on my butthole. Can you <laughs> just ruin their day? Like, You're like, I'm not sure what this uh, is. Can you look at my butt? And there's like, Let's be honest, because it has to do with the GI system, they'd probably just send you to internal medicine first. Really? Yeah. But I mean, okay, that was said with a little bit of cynicism. (laughs) But no, so yeah, no, dermatology is a hard specialty to get into. So they can pick the top people, right? They can pick the smartest people because they can be selective. Um, And that's kind of starting to be the same thing with psychiatry. Psychiatry, you know, it's, relatively chill when compared to like surgery residencies where the hours aren't too bad. Um, it's a little more relaxed. Yeah. Uh, so people want to go into that just because, you know, it's a more relaxed lifestyle. Um, so for me, when I apply, I'll be applying to psychiatry and internal medicine because I love both. And if I don't get into psychiatry, I'm going to be okay being in internal medicine. So it's a backup plan. How crazy is it with 
the amount of new drugs that are coming out that you have to know about? Because it seems like every day there's a new... Like medical drugs or street drugs or both? Medic, well, both, <laughs> but I, I'm was thinking maybe medical. There's always, there's always new drugs that are coming out. Um, when I was your age, there was, there was like three antidepressants. There was like right. Zoloft and... Yeah. You know... Zoloft's still around. We still Zoloft's use it. still around. Lithium. Don't use that one as much for depression. But I take Lexapro like, now. And yeah. when I remember when I w- first went in, because I was having really bad anxiety and panic attacks, and I finally went in to see a doctor, and she's like, gonna, she's like I'm going to start you, try you out with uh, Lexapro. She's like, it's fairly new. This was like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was like, I've never heard of this. What is the... There's so many, so many. And I got really lucky. I had minimal to no side effects with Lexapro. That's kind of the wonderful thing about new drugs is that we can give them options. Because I know when I started out on my antidepressants, I started out on Zoloft. And I just had horrible side effects. Just the nightmares were awful. And then they're like, oh, we're going to put you on Celexa now. Nope. No problem. None whatsoever. Um, But yeah. Typically, we you know tend to stick to what we know works. Yeah. Um, granted, again, not a doctor. Yeah. So yet, so we're don't no doctors. take. <laughs> we are no doctors yet. <laughs> um, so don't take my word as law or absolute fact. Um, but there still tends to be kind of like the basic meds that you use for general problems. When new meds come out. Um, I found that doctors are a little bit more hesitant to use them um, just because they're newer. We yeah, don't know sure. like the side effects. You know, we can say it's safe, but you're still just like, it's very much a touch and go trial basis until you've used it enough where you're actually comfortable using it, which, you know, most drugs are like that. How long is a drug, like say an antidepressant, tested before it's released to the the public years it goes through many stages of of testing before it's even announced to the public yeah so it it takes years to develop these drugs all right i'm gonna go through some of my medical issues and then you tell me what you know about them oh man i'm gonna put on spot okay i've had vertigo most of my adult life okay Describe your vertigo. I'm going to just go full. I'm going to interview you I here. usually, maybe once a year, now it's less, uh, but about once every year, year and a half, mm-hmm. I will have at least one episode where it's usually in the morning. If I'm laying down, I'll wake up. Everything seems fine. And when I sit up, the room visually looks like it's spinning. Mm-hmm. And I have to lay back down and get into my original position before, you know, it's BPV, I think. Yeah, you have to get good to, old to benign I, positional vertigo. I have to get to where I was before the room started spinning and mm. pretty much just stay in that position. Yeah. And every, like, few minutes I'll try turning and seeing if it's better and no. Mm-hmm. Usually I, I've, I've gotten it under control, not under control, but I deal with it by, I'll take a um, Benadryl, Mm-hmm. knocks me out I'll sleep for another few hours and wake up and it's better mm-hmm. um, Epley maneuver doesn't usually work for me Ooh, that's unfortunate yeah 
Also, the Eppelian maneuver is f- fucking horrifying when you're in the middle of vertigo. Yeah. For someone who doesn't have vertigo, it's like, oh, yeah, lay your head back and you're fine and then turn it to one side and then sit up and then turn. Yeah. It's like, that's easy. But when you're actually dizzy, you're you're increasing it because you're turning your head in the way that causes the dizziness to because for those listening, I've talked about vertigo so much on this podcast. It's BPV is crystals in your inner ear coming Mm -hmm, loose mm -hmm. and they throw off the balance of fluids in your inner ear, which make your head think you're not standing up straight even if you are but there's also you can just explain it yourself well no no (laughs) i mean the my issue is i've been to see ents i've been to see people and it's like there's a million things that can cause vertigo yeah i also had a neck injury when i was like 18 or 19 like Mm -hmm. whiplash basically and Maybe that started it. I notice I get a lot dizzier when I'm uh, dehydrated. Yep. And I looked it up and it's like, oh yeah, vertigo is a symptom of dehydration. So I drink a lot more water now, which I also do for my kidney stones. <laughs> Definitely important for kidney stones. And, also, yeah. uh, so I haven't really gotten the, the spinning room, but I still have some, I usually have some sort of, like, I feel dizzy right now. I feel, I usually always feel like I just went on a roller coaster about 20 or 30 minutes ago. Like, so just like, hmm. whoa. And that's how I'll feel like all the time. Yeah. That sucks. I wish I could offer you some, so, you know, <laughs> some I think awesome you advice. Go into uh, ENT. <laughs> um, Specifically to treat your vertigo. Also, do you know what esophageal spasms are? I think I get esophageal spasms once every blue moon. So esophageal spasms for people who don't know are just, it's basically, it's exactly what it sounds like. Your your esophagus just randomly decides to just spasm and contract. Yeah. I, I've for probably 20 years thought I was allergic to chicken Mm -hmm. uh, because every time I would, not every time, but gradually more and more often whenever I would eat chicken, like my throat would like close up mm-hmm. and I was like, hmm. oh, I think I'm developing an allergy to chicken, even though I can still eat eggs. And so after a while, it would happen like once or twice a year, then more often and more. And soon it started happening like almost every time I ate chicken. So I was like, eh, I'm allergic to chicken, just not going to eat it anymore. So I haven't had chicken for years. And then a couple years ago, I started getting very similar symptoms when I just eat just random shit like Mm -hmm. steak or a sandwich. A lot of dry foods will, will cause it. And so now I'm like, I, I don't think I'm allergic to chicken. I think I chicken just really sets off my esophageal spasm. You just irritate your esophagus to the point where just like, nope, not today. We're not putting this in the stomach because <laughs> no. it really is crazy. It closes up so much that you can't even swallow saliva. Yeah. People feel like they're choking. Yeah. And they can't get anything up. Yeah. That everything's just like stuck right behind, you know, their sternum. It's like, it's not in my stomach. It's not in my mouth. Can't get anything up. Yeah. My friend Brian Posehn, who played my boyfriend on the Sarah Silverman show, 
he would get the same thing. Mm-hmm. He would get it really bad. I remember one time we were in my trailer at work and uh, we had broke for lunch. And so we got some food and we took it into my trailer and we were eating. And I think it was like tri-tip or something. And he took a mouthful of food and then all of a sudden like runs for my trash can is immediately spitting up all his food because he can't swallow. He can't swallow. It's not going down. Yeah. He was getting it all the time and eventually had a procedure Mm-hmm. where they put basically like a balloon into your throat yeah. and expand it mm-hmm. to just kind of... It stretches it out. Stretch your it's, throat out. It's kind of like the same thing they do with, you know, clogged arteries. They just put like sometimes, you know, depending Step. on what it's like, they just put a little balloon in there, stretch it out, and then... And then leave it? There. So you'll basically the balloon stretches out. They don't have to out. leave like a stent in or anything. It depends. It really kind of depends on how bad the artery is occluded and whatnot <laughs> and you're just like huh, medical words cool yeah but yeah it's, it's basically the same thing for the esophagus they just kind of go and balloon it out stretch it out um and that's something sometimes you need the procedure done more than once he did it and said he hasn't had no well, good good for him hasn't had it since yeah. i have it infrequently enough that i'm like i don't want to you don't have the balloon down your throat, throat. He's like, dude, you're asleep the whole time. It's, and then you wake up and you can eat food again without gagging. Yeah. Um, oh, there was another one. I'm sure you've talked about your kidney stones. Kidney agnosium stones on here. so much. Um, and you know I just had kidney, I had lithotripsy. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's, here's what I wanted to talk about. Okay, let's see if I know. Anything about this? Well, you'll, you'll know where I'm going with this when I start telling my story about going in because I was supposed to have uh, shockwave lithotripsy oh, where okay. you lay on the table yeah, I know where you're going. and they shoot sound waves into your kidney and break mm-hmm. up the stone externally, which is perfect. <laughs> and I went in for my procedure, was just about to go in and have it done. The anesthesiologist had met with me. This was also back in February after I'd been seeing a trainer for two months and been on a diet for a month and lost almost 30 pounds. And I was really proud of this. And the doctor comes in just before my shockwave procedure and goes, yeah, we can't do it. You're five pounds too heavy. I was like, fuck, five pounds. (laughs) You're so close. And I was like, can we just wait two weeks? I can lose five pounds in a week even. Yeah. He's like, no. He's like, the uh, kidney stone's already blocking your ureter. We don't want you to get an infection. He's like, Mm -hmm. we have to do this right now. We're going to go in through your urethra and up through your bladder and break it up with a laser. (laughs) I was like, like, great. And that, that resulted in the stent, which was the most painful thing ever. But. You told me a thing I did not know this was real. And it's not something I've ever even thought about because I've had, I've had, I've passed like three kidney stones and each time I've had to have a CT scan mm-hmm. for those who don't mm-hmm. know, it's you lay on a table and there's a ring that, that starts at your feet and goes all the way up to your head and back down It scans your whole body. And I never thought of the fact that there are people that are so overweight that they can't fit fit in a CT. 
And by the way, a CT scan is massive. It's fairly large. Yeah. I mean, look one up. Actually, when I post post this on Thursday in the uh, to my Instagram, I'll add a photo of the CT scan I had last. Like, I took a photo of the table. It's huge. It's, it's huge. a giant it's ring. A, it's yeah, like it's, it's bigger than this kitchen table. Nobody else can see the kitchen table, but it's like a good four, three and a half, four feet across. Oh, it's about, it's at least four, yeah. four feet in diameter. Yeah. And uh, I just assume everyone could lay on this, but there are people yeah. that are so big. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> this is this, this fascinating also to me. Blew my mind. Um, yeah, we, we had a patient who came in after a trauma and we needed to get a CT scan for him because we thought he might have had some head trauma and we obviously want to see if there's a bleed in his brain. Yeah. And um, my resident gets a call shortly after we send him CT and like, well, he doesn't fit in our scanner. But if you really need this scan, we can send him to San Diego I look at my resident. I'm like, what's in San Diego? I was like, is there like a university with a bigger scanner, you know, something and like, you know, a CT scanner that is made for larger people. And she looks at me like, oh, no, SeaWorld. SeaWorld is in San Diego. So it's the 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 CT machine. The CT that they use for whales and walruses. Wow. It's the only one in the area that would fit this person. And it just, it just blew my mind that, I mean, like, you're like, okay, sometimes people don't fit in CTs and we might have to send them out elsewhere. You know, I've heard of patients being sent to, like, the Cincinnati Zoo, you know, but it's just, like, you never think that you're actually going to see it. And it's like, oh, my gosh, we, if we want to see this guy's CT scan, like a full-body CT scan, we have to send them to the place where they scan orcas. I feel like they should make... Well, they obviously make CT scans that are big enough for walruses, whales. Yes. So they exist. And it seems like there would be some in like major cities, at least mm-hmm. like, like let's send this guy to LA. It's a major city. We'll send him to, uh, you know, Cedars. Yeah. But they don't even have them there. It, it, because I, um, I think it's, it's a cost thing. It's a, it's how much does it cost? to own, maintain, run this CT scanner, like, and how often are we going to use it? Granted, you know, some people can also look at more research um, and actual facts for this, but that can be the, that's the only reason I can think of in my brain of why hospitals wouldn't have them. an adjustable CT scan. Yeah. Or it can just like, yeah, like we need to make this bigger. Yeah. I don't understand the science of a CT scan. It's it's basically an X-ray, right? How or is it using like it basically sonar? How's it scanning? It basically um, no. I wish I I knew better, but it basically measures the density of your um, of the body. Do you have to wear lead? Right, you do not. Um, but you, feel- you do get some radiation, I believe, but it's not as much as like when you're exposed to I an feel X-ray. Like- I had lead on my crotch when I got, no, that was, I did, uh, 
when I first went in for this last kidney stone that I had the surgery for, the first thing they did was do an x-ray and an ultrasound. And they sent me to a center. Like, there are just places you can go to get an x-ray. Yeah, like, there's x-ray centers. You don't mm-hmm. even like have outpatient to go to a hospital. x-ray centers, yeah. Like, I remember it was <clears throat> game changer when my... I'd had a... I passed a kidney stone and I went to the emergency room and I ended up passing it on my, my own, but... Then I went to see my urologist after the fact. And he's like, oh, he's like, don't go to the emergency room. It's going to be so expensive. He goes, you can literally just go to, there's like clinics. There's one in like Toluca Lake where it's just all they, it's like an imaging center where you Mm -hmm. do CT scans or ultrasounds or x-rays. Yeah. And so I went to this place and they had to do my kidneys. And so the guy just put like, a lead vest over my crotch and I was just like, Oh, this is horrifying. <laughs> well, we don't want to, you know, no, irradiate no. you where it's important. Sometimes. How does it, like if you have a lot of x-rays over your lifespan, mm-hmm. what are the chances of you getting like, Oh man. Um, man, actual stats. I don't think I could tell you. Um, like if you have to get like but an X-ray once a year. Once a year, you're gonna be fine. I had a, um, oh, what is it? A stress test. I had a nuclear stress test. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who've had stress tests where they go in and they put the, you know, the EKG pads on you and they monitor you on a, a treadmill. But I was having heart palpitations and I went to, uh, and this was right after Kevin Smith had had his heart attack. And so I was, I was really freaked out because he had it like on my birthday and I was like, I got to get my heart checked out. (laughs) It's a sign. I need to get it checked. I've been living with these heart palpitations for too long. So I go to the cardiologist and they're like, we're going to do a nuclear stress test. And he's like, it's like the most comprehensive scan you can do of a heart. He's like, this will tell you if you know, will tell us if you have anything wrong with your heart. Mm. And, uh, I go in in the morning and they put this port in your hand and they inject you with a radioactive isotope. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, the doctor's putting it in me in, into my bloodstream. And he's like, okay, so your arm may feel really cold for a little while. Um, He's like, this is a radioactive isotope, so, uh, but it's no more radiation than you would get, say, like an hour at the beach in the sun mm-hmm. or a flight from L.A. to New York. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I've never heard about this. I go, I'm getting radiation on flights? And he's like, yeah, you're like up in the atmosphere. Like, like there's no ozone protecting you. No, he's like you're getting radiation yeah. when you fly every time. I was like, I had no, nobody tells you this shit. Yeah. Um, PSAs they don't tell you. No. Yeah. But we did it, and it was. Uh, it was. I'm glad I had it done because he was like, he's like you have no plaque buildup. He's like everything looks great. Yeah. Um. And and I was, that, so I was just like, why don't people just do this? Because like, you still want to limit it or limit the amount of radiation you get, right? It's the same thing as when you go to the beach, you obviously want to wear sunscreen because too much radiation just isn't great, you know? Um, So radiation has changed a lot over the years. You know, like the original x-rays, there's no way those things were healthy. No. 
Um, now you can do low dose x-rays. You can do low dose CTs to try and minimize the amount of right. uh, radiation you get. Even I've been in vascular surgeries where we try to limit the amount of contrast that we shoot through veins, you know, just because we want to, you know, again, keep radiation to a minimum just because you don't want it to build up over time. But I still feel like, you know, they say you should get a, you know, get a colonoscopy, you know, by, you know, when you're 50, get a colonoscopy. I'm like, why don't people should also, I feel like some, you should also just go in and get like a nuclear stress test when you're 50. Mm -hmm. Cause that's, you know, it depends on if there's indications for it. Right. Like, did you have somebody in your family who was young and had heart problems? And that's why we always ask, like, do you have any family history, any family history of heart problems, diabetes, you know, lung problems? My you friend, just perked up. You're like, my, oh, topic. No, my friend Autumn, uh, I have to have her on this podcast. She, uh, her whole life has been like the same weight. Mm -hmm. Her whole life. It has not fluctuated at all. A couple years ago, she gained like no joke, like two or three pounds, mm -hmm. which for her was unheard of. Literally, she just doesn't fluctuate. And so she was worried it was something to do with her thyroid. And so she went to a doctor. They got a checkup and they're like, everything seems to be good. She's like, can you uh, check my thyroid? They're like, nothing here would suggest we should even check your thyroid. Mm -hmm. uh, every, she's, they're like, you know, you're in your 30s now. You're going to start gaining weight. She was like, uh, she didn't, she still felt like I just don't mm -hmm. fluctuate. She's like, I think it's my thyroid. She went to another doctor. They said the same thing. And then she lied and said, well, my mother had thyroid cancer, mm -hmm. which was not true. And they're like, oh, well, you should have told us. Yeah, we'll check your thyroid. They checked her thyroid. She had thyroid cancer. Listen to your patients, doctors. That's one of the main things that they kind of instilled in our brain my first year of med school is that your patients know Their themselves yeah. the best. So even if you think like all signs are pointing to like, no, this person should be fine. Like, should if be. they're worried, do something yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. You're not paying for it. They're paying for it. Yeah. It's, it's just one of those things like your patients know their bodies. If they're like, no, like something's not right. I don't know what it is. And they're hundred percent sure, you know, and they're, they're concerned about this. Then do further workup. You, know. you heard it from an almost doctor. An almost first. doctor. <laughs> almost, almost this time doctor. Next year. Next year. Next year. It's, it's, yeah, it'll be graduation time. Oh. Scary. I'll have the MD after my name. It's exciting. It's exciting and scary. Because at that point, people's lives will actually be in my hands. Well, I hope you go into a profession that, um, or a specialty that benefits me. <laughs> <laughs> or at least benefits this podcast. I will give you unsolicited medical advice all the time. Um, people can find you on Instagram, which is where I follow you. It's... I can. What is the, the username? This is going to work. Got Winks? Yeah. It's dot, from, got dot Winks. Yeah. So got dot Winks. It's from a old italian cartoon no yeah i mean it's i mean come on i was like in sixth grade it was about fairies and going to like high school to learn how to be super awesome fairies and there was like my first email address and i just 
kept the username since then. What are winks? It was had to do with their magical powers. It's W-I-N-X. W-I-N-X. Yeah. So it's got G-O-T dot winks. winks. Yeah. And the show is called Winks Club. You <laughs> won't see looking. a lot of medical shit <laughs> yeah. on Victoria's Instagram. You'll see a lot more. Nerdiness. Marvel related yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's true. Um, all right. Well, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Anytime. I am a fount of medical stories. This is for great you. for me to know. It wasn't <laughs> until we were last week, we were sitting upstairs with my mom and you were mm-hmm. telling all these stories in my head. The gears were turning. I'm like, oh my God, I have to have her on the oh, podcast. Oh yeah. Like we haven't, like we've just touched the surface. Yeah. Like we haven't even gone into like my Obi-Gyne stories or anything. <laughs> oh yeah. You had amazing yeah. one. Okay, Next you definitely time. have to do more. Yeah. Um, yeah, we nailed it. An hour and 10 minutes. Sweet. Um, all right. You got anything to add? No. Go yeah. to the doctor if you feel sick. Yeah, if you feel sick, go to the doctor. Get vaccinated. Don't, get your don't flu Don't wait. Like, hmm, you know what? I think I can tough through this pain. Let me wait a week. No, just just go. Yeah. Just go. It's one of my biggest That's pet peeves That's kind of the patients. whole thing of this theme of this podcast if you're concerned about something just go get it checked out why wouldn't you we're here (sighs) well you heard it from an almost doctor folks almost doctor and we're not doctors almost doctors all right victoria thank you for doing this thanks for having me this was great uh, we'll do it again sounds good bye bye A podcast network.